0: Today's podcast is brought to you by the Freedom Day Dividend ETF. We know Ryan Kruger very well. Ryan and his team have been managing money for private clients through many market cycles since 1996. Their strategy is focused on finding companies with the potential to increase their dividends. Now, for the first time, they're offering an actively managed ETF for investors everywhere. The ticker symbol is MBOX, M-B-O-X, as in mailbox, designed for shareholders searching for opportunities to receive more mailbox money.
1: The fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses must be considered carefully before investing. For this and other important information about the fund, please visit freedomdaydividend.com for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Read it carefully before investing.
0: Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long term investor.
1: Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.
0: Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk through some of the lessons we've learned over the past year or so. From the market as a voting machine, to how investors may define the long term, especially when it comes to factors, to thinking in terms of probabilities versus certainties, to why there will always probably be a reason to sell, and how very few people are doing the math. These are just a few of the observations we wanted to share as we continue to learn and grow over time in the markets. Thanks to everyone who has taken the time to listen to Excess Returns. We appreciate it. Jack, before we jump into it today, I just wanted to take a second to debrief on the last 12 months of the Excess Returns podcast. Uh, You and I have produced 65 different episodes, and we've been privileged to sit down and be joined by some great guests, including Michael Mobison, Sheridan Tittman, Cullen Roach, Ben Inker, Corey Hofstein, Rob Arnaud, Robert Hagstrom, and some names that people might not be as familiar with, like Ryan Kruger, Bill Sweet, and Perth Toll. I'm leaving out many, many other people who took the time to share their thoughts and wisdom with us and our listeners and viewers. But here's the thing. I'm not sure any of the people that joined us would have taken the time out to speak with us if it wasn't for the fact that we had listeners and viewers that watched excess returns. People have taken their time out of their busy schedules and lives to learn about investing and from the guests we've had on and the material we're putting out. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of finance or investing related podcasts out there. So the fact that people chose to listen to us, we're very grateful for that. We hope to continue to bring you good and valuable content Throughout 2022, so thank you very much for everyone that's listened.
1: Yeah, you know we, um, you know, just to, just a comment on that quick. You know, we we didn't know. I mean, obviously, when we started this, we had no idea what to expect, and you know, we're we're two plus years in now, and you know, every you know, we just interviewed Michael Mavis and as you mentioned. Like every time we ask someone like that to come on, like I'm I'm still shocked they say yes. Um, you know, I can't I can't understand why they would come on and talk to us, but it's uh you know it's it's been awesome and it's been a really good learning experience and it's it's a it's a great way for us to like learn from these people because you know, if, if we wanted to just reach out to these people, say, and say, you know, do, a, do an hour call with us just so we can pick your brain about investing, you know, a lot of the people probably wouldn't say yes, but because of the podcast, we've been able to do that. So it's it's been a really cool opportunity for us to do this.
0: Yeah. So for this episode, Jack and I are going back to the old school, original days where it was just him and I talking about a specific investing topic or concept or article. Um, so it's not going to be an interview uh, like we've had the past couple months today.
1: Yeah, you know, I was I was just thinking. I mean, the last time we did this with just you and me was probably it's been months at least. Um, so it's it's probably going to be a significant letdown for the uh, you know considering the guests we've had recently. It's probably going to be a significant letdown for the audience to have to listen to me ramble on about whatever I'm going to ramble on about. But uh, nonetheless, it's it's good it's good to do these occasionally.
0: Yeah. So for today, we want to talk about lessons that we've learned uh, throughout the last year, maybe a little bit longer when it comes to investing. And obviously, every market you go through, every year you go through in the market, every uh, different market environment, you know, provides an opportunity to sort of take a step back and think about the lessons that um, we've learned, the things that maybe areas we were right, areas we were wrong, what's changed in the market, and just overall sort of some hopefully timeless things and lessons that investors can sort of think about um, as they think about investing and being successful in the market over time. And Jack, we're gonna use at least to start um, an article you wrote around the lessons that you learned throughout 2021. We'll use that as a jumping off point and then we'll sort of build off some of these points and then I'll add in some things at the end.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's been a really, and you know, this is really lessons from the post pandemic period, if anything, because you know the market has really been a little bit different in in the post 2020, you know, at the end of the pandemic and at the end of the bear market, you know, we've had a lot of things going on in the market that have sort of, especially for fundamental investors like us, and, and particularly for people who use value like we do, you know, we, we've had a lot of things going on that maybe ha- have we ha- haven't understood as well as maybe the, the way the market worked before that. And so what I was doing with this article is I was just trying to work through some of that stuff in my own mind, and I figured I might as well write it down. And, you know, some of these are lessons directly related to 2021. Some of them are sort of continuing to learn lessons that I've been learning prior to 2021. But I wanted to just write down some, some of the major points that I want to keep in mind as, as we run fundamental strategies going forward.
0: So, there's that famous quote from Buffett in the short run, the market's a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. Now, there's some debate as to which Buffett actually credits Graham for being the originator of at least part of that quote. Um, but your point number one in your article is the market is actually always a voting machine.
1: Yeah. You know, and this is something I've sort of been learning over the last few years. You know, I, I, I use that quote all the time in my articles to try to enforce the idea that eventually, fundamentals will matter and eventually fundamentals are determine determine what happens with the market but the reality is that's not really true the market is always a voting machine so flows what people want to buy and sell i mean that's always what's going to determine what happens with price but what you hope as a fundamental investor is in the long term obviously what we're buying here is portions of a business and so oh, you would hope over the long term that the people who are buying portions of these businesses would care about the fundamentals of the business and so in, in effect the market is a weighing machine but it's only a weighing machine in that the market participants have to eventually care about fundamentals. And that's been one of the challenges we've seen sort of in the post-pandemic period is this idea of has the market cared at all about fundamentals or has this been such a flows-driven market that they don't, you know, the people participating in the market don't care about fundamentals at all. And, you know, when we had Michael Mobbison on the podcast, he pushed back up on this a little bit, you know, because I've been one of these people that's been saying, you know, this is the market has been a voting machine. It hasn't cared at all about fundamentals. And he sort of pushed back and said, you know, if you think about it, if you have a pandemic, you know, the types of stocks the market rotated towards, made sense, you know, in the heart of the pandemic and maybe the, the stocks that it rotated to, you know, when the economy started coming back, that made sense as well. And, you know, when you look at areas like electric vehicles, which he referenced, you know, the market's trying to figure out who the winners are going to be. And so it, what can look like the market not caring about fundamentals can be really more of the market trying to determine what those fundamentals are going to be over a long period of time. So the, the big takeaway for me, though, is that it, it's just important to keep in mind that voting is really what matters. And eventually you hope that voting will will be based on fundamentals. But all of us who are fundamental investors need to say, you know, I can't say this year or next year or the year after that suddenly fundamentals are going to come back into the picture. It's it's really something that you'd expect to happen over the long-term as people care about the businesses they're buying.
0: And I think what both Graham and Buffett were really trying to get at with that quote is investor psychology and, you know, this, the market we're in, the market we've been in in the past, whatever, two years you know, investor psychology has played a very important role in terms of driving the price of some of these stocks. So that's the voting mechanism that happens, you know, especially in the short run day to day with mean stocks, with, um, you know, sort of the uh, diff- different types of investors, whether it be the retail investor or the Reddit crowd. And really this, this fear and greed that kicks around stock prices day to day, you know, that's oftentimes, times not tethered to the fundamentals. And obviously, they can get very disjointed. Prices can get very disjointed from the fundamentals um, because of the voting that's taking place. But to your point, in the long run, you know, hopefully fundamentals do matter and will continue to matter. They should. Um, And that's where the weighing comes in. Number two is it is important to understand what the really long term means. So what were you really trying to get at with that?
1: Yeah, this is getting at the definition of long-term. And, you know, we, we sort of throughout our careers have had two different definitions of long-term. We had our own definition of long-term and then we've had the definition that people, you know, clients have had of the long-term. And so we've always had a pretty long definition of the long-term. You know, clients will typically come in and, and follow these types of factor strategies we run. And, you know, they probably define the long-term as something like three years. So if, if they haven't seen results in three years, they're, they're sort of questioning whether the strategy works. You know, we've probably always had something like say a 10-year time frame in terms of how we judge these fundamental strategies. But I think my point here is I think both of us were too short in in that period, uh, because if you look at what's gone on with value, I mean we've easily had a ten plus year period where value struggled, and and there's periods like that in the past as well. And so the the challenge with these strategies is you really have to define the long term. I, I heard Meb Faber mentioned this on a podcast a while back. You know you probably when you're running these types of factor strategies have to define the long term as something like twenty years, and and there's very few investors out there who can follow a strategy for ten plus years when it's not working. And so from from my end, running these strategies, I think this just made me take a look, you know, take a step back and say, and this is something I've been continuing to do over the last few years and just say, what really is the long term? And, and I think the long term really is, you know, when you talk about factor strategies, if you want to say, you know, over what period would I say this strategy doesn't work anymore if it's not working? I mean, you're not looking at 10 years. You're looking at a period longer than that. And so that's just something that's important to keep in mind for us, for people who run the strategies, but also for people who follow them. You know, if you're going to run and, you know, we, we tend to advocate multi-factor, so we don't tend to ad- advocate anybody following just value anyway. But if you're going to come in and you're just going to follow a strategy like value, you know, you can't have a five-year time frame. You can't even really have a 10-year time frame because there's going to be periods where that strategy is going to struggle that long and you're going to abandon it at the wrong time. And so that, that was really what I was getting at here is just I think it's really important to understand what long-term means when you're running active strategies that differ from the market.
0: And by the way i think that's very difficult for the vast majority of individual investors and maybe even institutions because if you're having a conversation with someone that's allocated to a let's say a you know value strategy that's a factor-based value strategy and they're sitting on three years of underperformance and they're asking well you know how long do i give a strategy like this and you and you look at them you know straight in the eye and you say you got to give this at least 10 years or another 50 you know the vast majority of people just kind of throw up their arms and they're like, I don't have that amount of time. So it's it's very difficult sometimes for investors to sort of wrap their arms around that and understand that. And that probably also is one of the reasons why, you know, you shouldn't be like all in on these factor strategies if you don't have that type of very, very long-term discipline mindset.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's an argument on the, fir- on the first step. It's sort of an argument for multi-factor because why would you follow, you know, you've got these factors that work at different times. We know they can struggle for really long periods of time. Why would you follow just one factor when you can follow them all? And, you know, we I, I have this chart from Larry Swedger, I referenced some of my pieces, which has shown basically that when you blend these factors together, these long periods of underperformance get a lot shorter. So, you know, that, it's definitely an argument if you're going to follow factors for a multi-factor approach, but also it's an argument for a lot of people to say, maybe I should run a passive portfolio. Maybe I shouldn't follow these factors because if I'm going to be the person, even if I run multi-factor, if I'm going to be the person after three or five years that's going to be saying, all right, I'm abandoning this strategy because it's not working. I'm probably I probably am better off not following it in the first place and just following an index approach.
0: Yeah, that that that's a good point. Um, the third one, and it, it, it's really relevant, I think, to this time of the year, because you know, coming into 2022, you have everyone making predictions about where the S&P is gonna go, where the Fed what the Fed's gonna do with rates, you know, where where the 10 year is gonna end. Everybody wants to make predictions, everyone is making statements and and giving forecasts with 100 percent certainty and conviction but the reality of it is when it comes to investing it probability over certainty is much more important
1: yeah wait are you are you attacking my forecast article i released
0: last week <laughs> yes well well, well I, I will be i will be scoring that at the end of the year to see if you got a five out of five wrong and, and it will be completely wrong which is the whole
1: point of writing the forecast article but nonetheless we'll talk about that maybe on a different different episode but uh but in general, yeah, I think every decision you make as an investor, it's important to put put a probability to that decision. Because the, when you do that, you sort of start to understand that there usually is a percentage on the other side of that decision. You know, and some, some things have worked 100% of the time historically. Like, for instance, if you've invested in the stock market for a 20-year period historically, so far, you've made money 100% of the time. That doesn't mean you will make money 100% of the time in the future, but it's good to sort of think of that, you know, in a probability. You know, uh, context. And, you know, the, the way I, I, this sort of came up for me is we, we talk about value investing all the time and we talk about how value investing works over the long term and we talk about how we think value investing is going to work going forward. And I think all of that is true, but there is a probability you put to that. That is not 100%. And I, I think it was Patrick O'Shaughnessy I was listening to that did a podcast and he kind of said, if you want to be intellectually honest about this, you can't say there's 100% certainty value will work in the future. You know, you can say there's a high probability value will work in the future because it has worked in the past. You know, it makes sense based on fundamental. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. You know, we've gotten into the risk-based and the behavioral-based explanations. There's a lot of reasons to say value should work in the future, but you can't say it with 100% certainty. And so it's when you look at it that way, when I'm, as a value investor, looking at my portfolio, I'm going to be more likely to say, all right, if I think there's a chance, you know, in the next 20 years, I'll just throw out a number. Let's say I think it's 90% in the next 20 years value is going to work and 10% it won't. Well, then I'm going to focus on that 10%, and I'm going to say, what, what would the world look like, sort of a premortem, what would the world look like in that 10% if value didn't work, and that'll probably make me a better investor. And so this is something I took from Annie Duke's book, um, Thinking in Bets. The, the idea is just with everything in life, it's, it's really good to sort of, as, as opposed to expressing certainty that I know this, it's better to look at it and say, all right, what are the odds I think this is going to work? You know, are they 90-10, are they 70-30, are they 50-50? Because that helps to put everything in the proper context.
0: You ended the article with. I'm just looking this up now because this is one of, this is actually one of my favorite parts with Dumb and Dumber. But it's when, when Lloyd, when Lloyd is talking to like Mary, really likes this girl. And he's like, be straight up with me. He's like, what are the chances of a guy like me ever getting a girl like you? And she says, you know, not good, Lloyd. And he says, not good, like one in a hundred. And she says, no, like one in a million. And he, and a big smile comes on his face, and he says, "So you're telling me there's a chance?" <laughs> That's right. That and that was that was my heading for this last one because th-
1: there's a lot of things that happened in the market, you know, in 2021 that you would put maybe in that category. You know, the things I referenced that in the article, obviously the GameStop thing, which happened early in 2021. I mean, GameStop was up something like 2,000 percent in a month. Um, you know, if if I said to you, I've got a gaming retailer, you know, when the economy is largely shut down, that operates out of malls. You know, and then their stock is going to go up two thousand percent in a month. You would have told me I'm crazy. There's no way that's possibly going to happen. And obviously, that wasn't driven by fundamentals in any way. But you know, it, the whole point of this last one was to say, you know, going back to that thing about probabilities before, is sometimes we'll assign zero probability to something, and then that it happens anyway. And you know, the, the hedge funds that were short GameStop learned that there wasn't a zero percent chance that GameStop will go up two thousand percent in a month. Or you know, I also referenced the Shiba Inu whale um in my article. You know, somebody invested $8,000 in Shiba Inu, and I believe they turned it into 5.6 billion in 14 months. Although, obviously, I think it's been more than cut in half since then. So, you know, who would have thought, you know, a currency named after a dog, you know, you could have invested $8,000 in it and turned it into, at least on paper, 5.6 billion. So it's just, it's important for all of us to keep that in mind. And it's particularly important when you're, if you're betting against something that you think is a 0% probability in the market, and, and then it comes true, you know, sometimes you can really be caught you know, on the wrong side of something. And as like the hedge funds that shorted GameStop learn, sometimes that can be a really big problem. So the point in the last thing was just to say, there are a lot of things that we may assign a 0% probability to, but every year in the market, or at least every five years or whatever, something happens where all of us say, you know, I don't think there, I didn't think there was any chance that could have possibly happened. And so it's just important to keep that in mind as investors. And, you know, 2021 was a really good lesson in that regard.
0: Yeah, good point. Just a few other things from my perspective. Um, and these are really all post COVID too. So it's not specifically for 2021, but you know, one of the things is I think, I think since the, since really March of 2020, there's been like a reset in investors' minds. And that's interesting to me. And I think it happened with the financial crisis too. It's like, it, maybe it's true of all bear markets. I don't know, but you know, there's some, and I think the last two big downturns we had, so the financial crisis and the COVID sell-off, which were very different They were very different bear markets and very different market environments in so many ways but what they did is what those did in investors minds is they put a like a hard break in terms of how people assessed performance and their portfolios it's like everything pre-covid it's almost like that was that that was a different environment and it was a different environment it was very different market it was very at least coming into that it was a very narrowly led uh market environment with large cap tech mostly leading and certain things in the market working and then you had the break and then you know a different set of things in the market started working some of the speculative stuff some of the growth stuff but then also some of the value stuff was, but the point is is that i think from a sort of mindset um perspective for investors it just it you know was a hard enough break where people almost didn't really care as much about how strategies did pre covid over. Or maybe the last 10 years it's almost like how have things done recently
1: yeah you know it's interesting too because you know one of the big things we were all all talking about you know pre-covid was this whole idea of passive investing is getting too big and it's it's imp- it, you know it's imp- affecting the market too much and you know it, it's sort of like people just dropped that uh you know obviously there was matt you know dispersion is much bigger active type strategies are doing a lot better and you know people have just sort of moved on from that passive thing and you know it's it's still yet to be determined whether that passive trend will just, I mean, obviously, people are still pouring money into passives. So will passives impact on the market? Will we kind of go back to the pre-COVID, you know, approach to that or whether we'll stay where we are now? But you're right. I mean, in a lot of ways, there's been this break in the market. And, you know, I think what a lot of us are trying to understand with a lot of these things is, you know, is this break going to be something long term where a lot of these things that have happened post-COVID are going to continue? Or are we going to maybe go back to the regime we were in before there, once this settles down, and, you know, I, I don't know if the answer to it, but I think that's something a lot of people are thinking about.
0: The other I saw a chart, I think it was from Michael Batnick, and I um, I thought this was really interesting. Now, this goes back probably like at least 10 years, but it was a chart of the market, you know, steadily going up, obviously some dips, 2015, 20, late 2018, 2020, of course. But it was like 40 reasons or actually I, t- I tweeted it and it was it was all these like reasons to worry and how the market was climbing a wall of worry all through this and you know you can make the argument that the federal reserve and low interest rates and all that kind of stuff and that's true um but you know there's always a reason to sell and that's the one thing that you know tomorrow we can wake up and there could well not tomorrow it's a saturday but well yeah saturday or monday or whatever there's always reasons to be worried and sell you know stocks and at some point you know, for investors that want to try to time the market, that could be a good decision. Although timing really doesn't work most of the time, but um, you know, there will be another bear market. There's certainly going to be corrections, um, but there's always going to be reasons to worry. And I think those investors that spend time worrying too much are probably the ones that don't end up doing as well. Like you can go back to like 2021 and think, you know, in the summer of last year, and listen, this pandemic thing with the shutdown of the economy and everything, I mean, no one knows for sure and no one no one could have had a, a playbook for this. Right. Even as we were recovering. But, you know, there was always reasons to be worried and sell and stuff. And, and that, most of those most of those things actually didn't end up, you know, be the worrying of it was not wasn't productive for people's portfolios that were in the stock market. So that's just another thing that I sort of thought was worth mentioning here.
1: Yeah. And that I probably should have had that in the article. That's a really good point. And, you know, if, if you think about like, there may not be a bigger example in history of climbing a wall of worry than the post-pandemic situation. Because, I mean, the wall has been massive. I mean, there's been every reason in the world the market should go down. Like you said, there's been just things piling on top of other things that are the reasons the market should go down. And what's interesting is in, eventually there'll be a reason the market does go down, but in retrospect, we won't remember any of those things that it should have gone down because of and it didn't. We'll remember the thing that actually drove it down and then we'll think, oh, I could have predicted that. Whereas, you know, you've got to remember all these other reasons, you know, all these other times while we were going up here where you thought, oh, the market's going to go down because of this or because of this. And, you know, that that's the problem, and that's why it's impossible to time the market, is there, there's always a reason to sell. And sometimes, like in this period we've seen in 2020, 2021, there's massive reasons to sell, but it still doesn't work out. And so th- that's why it's just so difficult to try to figure out these things. Yeah, my last point here, we'll just
0: wrap it up, is, um, you know, I, I feel like maybe this is more of a pet peeve of mine rather than a lesson, although I think it can be a lesson for people that hear things and that want to back into, is this realistic to think about or... Um, assume that something's going to happen. But, you know, very few people out there do the math. And what I mean by that is, you know, whether you're in these clubhouse rooms about Bitcoin or whether you're thinking about Kathy Wood's ARC investments and you're looking at returns, like, I don't know what Kathy Wood put up. She, you know, potentially before the beginning of this year, she might have had one of the best five year track records of any mutual fund manager out there. She may have compounded at something like 45, 50% per year for the last five years. I mean, if you look at Bitcoin up until the most recent, decline. It might've been compounding out at like 200% a year for the last five years, something like that, maybe a little bit less. But the point is, is when you take the asset base of ARK or the market cap of Bitcoin, and you just assume that they're going to continue to compound at those rates in the future, you, know, you, get, you get things that are the size of things like a trillion dollar asset in terms of market cap with Bitcoin compounded at 200% a year for 10 years. It gets you something like, I don't even know, you do the math, it's ridiculous. It's not even, it doesn't seem feasible to me. So the point is, is that, you know, when you see these crazy returns, I guess in smaller assets, they could happen, but as assets get bigger, you just have to ask yourself, is this realistic when I apply those returns to these numbers, is that even at all feasible? And the answer probably in most cases is is probably no.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's, I mean, obviously, you know, what, what Arc did is impressive. And obviously for for people like us who have relied on fundamentals to invest, I mean, it's, it's far better than what we've done but you also have to you know when what you're referencing there is you know there was a i think the to her forward projection for arc was something like 20% a year and then the the price of the ETF went down and you know now it's it's 40% a year and so looking at that and just saying you know is it feasible for a fund to really any fund to return 40% a year um you know is it, always something you want to question and it's actually gone down more so you know it might, might be 50 or 60 now but you know that that's always something just to keep in mind i mean th- those types of returns you know al- almost nobody ever produces those kind of returns and so it's not knocking a particular style of investing more than it's saying for all of us, for us included, you know when you see these numbers, you know it's it's important to try to dig into them and say, what's behind these numbers? What's going back to the probability thing we talked about before? What is the probability this will actually happen in the real world? Because sometimes you'll find some some of these projections you see coming out of Wall Street just there's just no chance in reality they're actually going to happen
0: so um that's some of the lessons that we took away from last year or the really last year or two hopefully you guys have found this is valuable and we will see you next time thank you hi guys this is justin again thanks so much for tuning into this episode of excess returns you can follow jack on twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on twitter at, at jj Carbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.